0: You guys may have a seat, and uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19 and chapter 20 this morning. Uh, we're going to be covering quite a bit of ground, so part of it we'll just tell the story, and part of it we'll read the story together, but um, I want us to uh, to cover this ground and, and, and get over into chapter 20 where we're going to uh, to be tomorrow, Uh be uh, next week as well. I want
1: to remind you real
0: quick kind of where we've been, Acts Chapter 19, Paul has been in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a, is a huge city, um, 100,000, 150,000 people. It's one of the larger cities in Asia at this time. It's a seaport city where it was probably the major seaport uh, in, in Asia. Ships would come in. There was three major roads that headed three different directions that were used to transport the goods and the things that came in through Ephesus uh, it was an incredibly important place for Paul to set up church because um, as travelers would come through Ephesus, they would hear the gospel and they would carry the gospel all through Asia. In fact, comments are made here in this passage in Acts that in the three years that Paul was in, in, in Ephesus, all of Asia was inundated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul worked in, in the early part of chapter 19. You remember all the, uh, the magicians and those that did the magical arts. Uh, man, they began one by one to be converted and to come to Jesus. They realized that the God that Paul preached was more powerful than any of the magicians' gods that they served. Uh, at the end of the passage we looked at last week, it talked about all the magicians bringing their books and burning them. And that the amount of the worth of those books was 50,000 drachma. 50,000 days' wages. That, that would mean if you had 137 magicians that donated their yearly earnings, that would have been the value of the books that they burned because they realized that those books were of no value compared to the Word of God, compared to the truth of God. And so we see this great big revival sweeping all across Asia. And when we get to the passage that we're going to look at beginning with today, we see that... Uh, that the the economy was being transformed by Christianity to the point that the craftsmen of that day, the men that made their living built around these false gods, were beginning to panic. Just, Just imagine this. Imagine if revival could sweep America in such a magnitude that it changed the economy America. Imagine if if revival was sweeping across America in such a way that that all the producers of alcohol began to panic and go, man, if everybody gets saved, our sales are going to plummet. If drug dealers across America said, my gosh, if everybody keeps getting saved in America, we're not going to have anybody left to buy our drugs. Imagine if, if revival was so great that the producers of pornography began to band together and say, we've got to do something because if Christianity sweeps across America, there's not going to be a man or a woman left to buy our pornographic material. That's the stage that's being set in Ephesus, that that revival is sweeping across that continent in such a way that those that deal with stuff that didn't belong are starting to panic and starting to wonder, what's going to happen to our trade and how are we going to make our profits if people keep turning from these false gods to the true God? And so that's kind of setting the stage for for where we're at. Uh, They're they're trying to to reinforce and to prop up their false god. In in Ephesus, um, there is this temple to Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple that we're going to talk about today was four times the size of the Greek Parthenon. It's huge. It had a theater. We're going to talk about this mob that was rioting and dragging in some of Paul's uh, acquaintances into the theater. This is not a movie theater that seats 68 people with recliners that pop up and people that bring you food. This is a theater that seats 20,000 people. It's huge. So we're going to talk about an event that takes place today over this temple that is literally one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That people would travel all across Asia and from all around the world to see. There's going to be a theater involved in our discussion today that would seat 20,000 people in an outdoor theater. This is a huge place with impact on, on, on the continent of Asia. And Christianity is sweeping across it so fast that the workers and the craftsmen of that day are beginning to panic. So look with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 19. Verse 21 is going to be a verse that's going to summarize in one verse. will summarize the rest of Paul's life. Verse 21 says this. Remember, they just burned all the the magicians' books, okay? And, And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, verse 20. Then verse 21, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit had convinced Paul to pass through Macedonia... And Achi, and then to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, after I've been to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. This is the first time that Paul mentions the trip to Rome. Guys, the trip to Rome was going to be the trip that Paul died on. The trip where he was imprisoned and eventually executed. The Holy Spirit at this point is giving Paul a glimpse of the rest of his life. And he's saying to Paul, Paul, things are winding down. There's a few things I've got left for you to do. He's over in Asia. He's going to cross back through Macedonia, Philippi, all those regions, back down through Berea, all the way back down to Corinth. And then he's going to set his face to Jerusalem, where he's going to say in chapter 20, The Holy Spirit's warned me in every place I go that when I go to Jerusalem, what awaits me are imprisonments and and, and beatings and eventually death. So Paul's, Paul's reaching a stage, guys, where life is starting to wind down. Paul's not through, and he is not letting up at all. But he's reaching that final leg of his journey, if you will. We're going to see today the rest of of his third missionary journey is going to wind up. And and he's going to to be headed back into Jerusalem where that that third journey will end. Where he'll be arrested and end up going straight to Rome for trial. So today is is a a short section of scripture that covers several years of Paul's life. But verse 21 is kind of a summary where Paul says to his followers, he says, listen, constrained in the spirit. Resolved in the Spirit. I'm going to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. Go back and encourage those churches in 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 that part of Macedonia. Over in Europe. And then I'm setting my face to Jerusalem. And I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will await me. Not knowing how every detail will work out. But knowing this. The Holy Spirit's warned me to get ready. That it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be tough. So Paul... Does this, verse 22. Paul is fixing to head into Macedonia and he knows that's coming. So it says he sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And what Paul would do, and we know this from Paul's letters that he wrote to these churches, is that Paul would use guys like Timothy and he would send them ahead of him. I'm fixing to go back into Macedonia, Timothy. I want you to go back and I want you to check in with the churches that we planted. Go back and check in. I want you to see where their strengths and where their weaknesses are. So that when I get there, you can report. And I'll know what we need to deal with. i know what we need to do. I'll know how we can strengthen those churches and get them back on track. If things were out of kilter, then Timothy would report back to Paul. And Paul would gear up to come into those churches and help bolster up what needed to be bolstered up. If false prophets have come in, he would go in there and he would correct that false teaching and get those churches reestablished on the gospel so that they could stand. And so here he is sending Timothy and Erasmus on into Macedonia ahead of him so that they can check things out and let him know so that his work and his time there can be of the, of the most value and he can get more done in less time. Now about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way was the, the, the name that was applied to the, the, the movement of Christianity back then in, uh, and they called it The way. There was a man named Demetrius. He was a silversmith who made silver shrines for Artemis. Now, Artemis was the, the, god, uh, the goddess of the temple. Um, she, was, um, she was literally what they called the, the goddess of the hunt. Uh, but she was a fertility god. If you've ever uh, gone online, you could Google this. But if you go online, you'll see a statue of her. And it's a weird-looking statue. But it's a statue of this goddess who stands like this. And from her waist to her shoulders are these bumps that are just all over the place. Some people say that they are uh, pictures of breasts all around her because that she's this fertility goddess. Others say they're eggs, pictures of, of fertility, the, the woman's eggs. But, but her whole from, from her shoulder to here is nothing but just these, these big bumps all over her that, that made her this fertility god. Um, her temple that they built her, again, four times larger than the Greek Parthenon. Uh, it was a football field and a half long, football field and a half wide, 60 foot tall, made out of pure marble. It's actually built three different times, this temple was. The first time it flooded and was destroyed. The second time a man set it on fire and burned it to the ground. And the third time they built it out of pure marble so that it would stand. To this day, the only thing left is the foundation and one of the huge columns that was there. Uh, but this thing was was massive in size. And people would travel from around the world to go to this shrine or this, this temple of Artemis. And it says this man named Demetrius, he was a silversmith. He made silver shrines, these tokens that people could buy when they visited, their, their little souvenirs to take home with them. He made these out of silver and he sold them. And it says it brought no little business to the craftsman. In other words, he made a lot of money off of these silver shrines. And so what he did is he gathered together with the workmen that were in similar trades and he said, men, you know that from this business we make our wealth. In other words, we get rich off of this. Our, our income is tied to this temple. If this temple goes away, our income goes away. If, if people don't travel here and people don't come to see this thing, then, then all of a sudden we are not going to be able to maintain the way of living that we've, that we've grown accustomed to. From this business, we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only here just in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people by saying to them, gods made with hands aren't gods at all. What's he saying to them? Paul, Paul's not dogging Aramaeus. He's just saying, listen, guys, if, if your God's got to be made with your hands, then that's no real God at all. In fact, the, the, the real God is not made by human hands. The real God made human hands. The real God has not been created by man. He created man. And we looked at that argument a couple chapters back when when Paul made the same argument in in other places. And so he's saying here, listen, Paul keeps telling people that these handmade gods, these gods that man-fashioned and that man-formed are no real gods at all. And here's the problem, he says to his friends. There is a danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. In other words, people will think, man... You guys are just looking to make a profit. And your trade means nothing. But being the great guy that he is, he's not just worried about himself, right? And I'm not just worried about me, but I'm worried that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all of Asia and the world worship. I'm not just worried about me. I'm worried about the goddess. Here's, I said this to you a couple weeks ago. But anytime you have a false god, a false god requires people to continually prop them up. If there there was a god that we worship that was a false god and we realized it was a false god and we turned away, that god would cease to exist. Because that god only exists as long as we prop it up. It's kind of like a lie. If somebody says a lie, a lie is only good as long as people continue to repeat it. A lie dies when people stop repeating it. Well, a false god dies when people stop propping it up. And he's saying, "Listen, these people are turning away from the false god, and it's not going to be long till she's not going to be famous anymore. It's not going to be long till people are going to stop traveling here. They're going to stop buying our shrines, and we're going to figure out something else to do." These guys are, are worried, but they're they're couching it in these. These terms to where we're not just worried about us, but we're worried about poor Artemis. Well, if Artemis is the, the, the real goddess, what are they worried about? If she is so powerful and if she's so true, and if people really do need her, what's he really worried about? Well, he's worried that people are turning away. And so when they heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians who were Paul's tr- companions in travel. Now Liz, did you get that, that picture of the... There we go. This is the theater. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I first read this as a teenager, I'm picturing a movie theater like ours where you run up, pull the curtain back, and these guys are giving speeches. This is the theater that they filled. It seated 20,000 people. And they rush into this theater. They grab two of Paul's companions and, and take them in there. Who knows what their plans are? But they drag them into this theater. I mean, this is can you imagine building this outdoor theater? It seats 20,000 people. We've got college football fields that don't seat that many people. And these guys are dragging them in there. And, and, and this was a theater that was used for a lot of theatrical productions. It would later be used as, as a place that they would bring in the animals to eat people and, and, and do that kind of stuff. But at this point, it's a theater that, that the people rush from the town into this theater to see what's happening. And this great big riot starts. They've got these two men that were, were uh, traveling companions of Paul. And they grab them because they can't find Paul. Well, Paul hears that his two buddies... Or being drugged into this theater. He doesn't know what's going to happen to them. He do not know if they're going to be killed or, or eaten alive or just what. But, but Paul wants to go in and, and rescue them. And the other disciples urge, Paul, Paul, please don't go into the theater. It'll only make things worse. And even the aristocrats, the guys of, 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 of Asia that were the, the, the leading men of the city, they contact Paul and say, Paul, whatever you do, don't. Don't go to the theater, it'll only get worse. The town clerk of the, of the local town clerk actually shows up and he's able to quieten down the crowd for two hours. They chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours they chanted how great their goddess was. Finally the town clerk, I can the pencil pusher, you know, with the glasses on his hand, and he comes in and he quietens them down. He reminds them that a riot without a good reason is a good reason for them to get in trouble. And he says, look, if these craftsmen have something against Paul, let them take it to court. Do it the right way. Don't do it the wrong way. Don't do something that you're going to regret doing. And by the end of chapter 19, it says that he's dismissed them. In verse 40, he says, guys, we're in danger of being charged with rioting today. Since there's no cause that we can give to justify all this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So here's these people all worked up, all riled up, because the gospel is making such an impact that it's threatening the economy of one of the greatest cities in Asia. Guys, I wish, I pray, that revival could sweep our land in a way that pagan businesses and promoters of smut would stand up and say, I am concerned that I'm not going to have anybody left to buy my stuff. I am concerned that that, that, that that nobody's going to want to buy my junk if revival continues to sweep across our nation. We need that in America. The truth of the matter is, a lot of that stuff has worked its way into the church, into us and into our lives. We need revival. Like they experienced revival in Ephesus and in Asia. So Paul in verse chapter 20 verse one, it says, "After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for those disciples, gathered them around, and says he encouraged them. And then he said farewell, and he departed. For Macedonia, So let's, if we can, let's throw the map back up here. Let me just kind of show you some things that, <coughs> that that's going to happen now. Let me get my little pointer. Okay, we've got Ephesus right here. He's in Asia in Ephesus. He's fixing to make his way back up, make his way over back into Macedonia. He'll be visiting in Philippi and all these areas. He'll be making his way back down around Athens and, and down here into the Corinth area. And so these are the areas that Paul's going to be visiting. Uh, and we're going to cover those very, very quickly. But he's going to make his way back up and around into Europe, and all the way down here into the area of Corinth. And so, uh, when want you keep in mind kind of where he's traveling, the distances that he's traveling. and uh, Because when you read this, it sounds like it's just a, he went to the next town. But he's actually going quite some distance here, okay? And so it says he departed from Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. That's down near Corinth. So, in, in just one verse... <laughs> He's left one continent, he's traveled all the way up into Macedonia, all the way through all those areas where he planted those churches and made his way all the way down into the Corinth area. So he's done all that in one verse. There, in Corinth, he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, now Syria is back to Jerusalem, okay? So he's about to set sail. Here, here was his original plan. Let's go back to that math real quick, Liz. Here's his original plan. He's over here in the Corinth area. His, his original plan is to get on a ship and to sail back all the way back across to Jerusalem here in the Syria area. He's going to visit Jerusalem. He wants to be there before Pentecost. And, uh, and there's where the Holy Spirit has told him he's going to be imprisoned. He's going to make his trip all the way back, all the way over here to Rome, which is on this side of, of Europe. So he's, he's, uh, he's here at Corinth. His plan is to set sail and to make his way back over to here. But he learns of a plot against his life. Now, he's going to travel by land instead of by ship, so it makes me wonder if the plot wasn't something to do with, a, 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 that's going to take place during this, uh, this long sail across uh, the Aegean Sea and back to Jerusalem. But listen to what it says. Three months there in Corinth, he was about to set sail for Syria, and he discovered this plot that was made against him. So he decided to return through Macedonia. So what he's going to do is make his way back up through the land. And instead of traveling by ship, we're going to see again, he's going to make his way from here back up through Macedonia, all the way back around. And then he's going to catch, here in Philippi, he's going to catch a ship, and they're going to bounce. It's going to be a cargo ship that's delivering some goods all the way back to Jerusalem. So what he's going to do is get on the ship. They're going to make port in all these different places. And they're going to mention a lot of names, this Samos and Chibos and Melanthia and all these places. I can't hardly pronounce He's going to hit those things as he goes down this coastline and then they're going to make sail and head back down here to, uh, to Caesarea where there's a huge port. So a lot of these names that he's going to say, I, I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing, but so will you, so we're in the same boat, okay? So let's look at what he says, okay? So he, he's getting ready to set sail, but he decides instead to return by land through Macedonia. And again, I think the Holy Spirit's guiding him and leading him in this, uh, in this, in this route. He's going to strengthen those churches again as he goes through. <clears throat> and uh, it, it gives us, verse 4, a lot of the traveling companions that are, that are there with him. It mentions Timothy going with him. But I want to say this to you, okay? As he's going to get back toward Ephesus and meet with the Ephesian elders, Timothy is going to be assigned to Ephesus. Uh, if you'll read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says to Timothy, I left you in Ephesus that you might build up this church and strengthen what was weak. So we're going to see here that he's going to make his way back to Ephesus as he goes down this coastline, and then Timothy's going to stay in Ephesus and become the pastor, the leader of that church in Ephesus, okay? So they, they set sail, verse 6, away from Philippi, and, and that for the days of unleavened bread, and in five days they came to Troas, and, and we stayed there for seven days. So he gets to this town called Troas, and, and that's where he's going to, to begin to speak. Now, again, Paul realizes life was coming to a close. That some bad suspects and the happy days going to spend a lot of time locked up in prison. And Paul wants to make the most of every one of these visits, guys. Listen, Paul didn't just go back to these towns and slap them on the back and, and, and check on their numbers and, and report to the, to the hierarchy how these churches were doing. Paul is there to, to pour into them and to give them everything that he's got. And so Paul sometimes would go late into the night as he spoke and as he preached. And, and in this next story, it's a, kind of a, a hilarious story, but it's a, it's a story that reminds us that Paul left everything on the field every day. Look at what, it, what happens here in Troas. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, the next time I run long, I'm just kidding. Can you imagine listening to Paul all day? And Paul goes on that night until midnight. He's trying to pack as much in to this visit as he can trying to give them everything that he's got and strengthen them in every possible way. Paul would say in chapter 20, we'll see next week, I never shied back from giving you anything that would have been helpful, from anything that would have strengthened you and encouraged you. Paul is giving it everything that he's got. So here you've got a a pastor who's full, Jesus. But you've also got a congregation that is hungry hungry for the gospel that no matter how much Paul gives them they just can't seem to get enough and so Paul speaks on and on and on and these guys listen and listen and listen And in verse 8 it says there were many lamps in that upper room where we were gathered a young man, young man named Eutychus Sitting at the window, he sank into a deep sleep as Paul stopped, talked still longer. Overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third-story window and was taken up dead. Here's a guy looking for a place to sit, the only thing left, the only place left to sits in the window. Somewhere around midnight, man, as Paul went on and on about the gospel, this kid falls asleep and falls down three stories to the ground and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him. And taking him in his arms, he said, Don't be alarmed, for his life is still in him. And listen to this. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, and conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And then he departed. Paul spoke all the way through the night, all the way till daybreak. I find it interesting that this kid falls from a third-story window, hits the ground, pronounced dead. Paul goes down, revives the kid, and then goes right back to the gospel. As if he hasn't missed a beat. And the people are still with him. And they're still listening. And they're still soaking up the gospel as best they can. Guys, we, we see here Paul's so full to, to give out the gospel and them so hungry to receive just one more thing that they can put to work in their lives. And these guys do that. And, and Paul gets up the next morning after being up all night. And Paul departs. You say, well, man, that's easy for Paul. He's going to get on the ship, and he's going to sleep for the next couple days. That's what I thought when I read it until you read the next verse. Well, verse 12, it says, And they took the youth away alive, and they were not a little, conf- com- little, not a little comforted. They, they were comforted that this kid didn't die. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for, he had so, for, he, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So Paul puts these guys on the ship after being up all night. And he takes off on foot. And tells them, I'll meet you in Asos. So Paul wasn't about to get on the ship and, and sleep for three days. Paul was about to get on foot and take off and strengthen some other churches along the way. And then he would meet these guys on the ship in the city called Asos. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite of Chios. To the next day, we touched at Samos. And the next day after that, we went to Miltus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus. So that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul wanted to be back in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And he knew that if they stopped in Ephesus, and he went back to the church there where he'd spent the last three years, and he'd be there for a while and probably miss the day of Pentecost back in, in Jerusalem. So Paul decided to sail on down south of Ephesus. But we'll see in, in next week's message that he's going to call for those, those elders from Ephesus to come and to meet him there at that port. And they're going to have an incredible reunion, an incredible time together. And that's where Timothy will kind of be assigned to, to be with that church and to, uh, to become the pastor of that, of that flock. And so as these guys go and as they, uh, they get there, they're going to hit a lot of different ports along the way. And I began to look at this this week, and and to be honest with you, uh, the first I had three days with 102 fever, and my head was pounding, and it was hard to focus. But the more I've read over this passage and and looked at it, I thought, you know, what's what's the real story here? What's the real story that we've seen so far in in Paul's life? And what are some things that we can look at to, to really begin to apply to our own lives? And this is what I think the Holy Spirit's shown me, at least for my life, and maybe it'll shed some light. In, into your life. That Paul's life was a life of uncertainty. Paul never knew if he would be well received. Or stoned. In the next town that he set his foot in. He didn't know if the people would like his message. Or hate his message. If he would be embraced or if he would be run out of town on a rail. He didn't know if he would be whipped or stoned. Or celebrated and want to be, uh, you know, elevated to the place of the gods. Life for Paul was a life that was, could be summarized in, in, as just a life of uncertainty. Would he be well received? Or would he be hated? Would people embrace him or would they, would they stone him? Would they ask him to come and to stay a while? Or would they tell him that he wasn't wanted in their town? So many moments of uncertainty. And I've got to be honest with you. That would be tough for me. It would be tough for me to stand before you guys week after week and go, "I, I don't know whether they're going to receive the gospel or they're going to hurl things at me. That would be hard to stand before a group not knowing how they're going to receive what you have to say and what they're going to do with the, the message that you present. And if, 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 if you presenting the gospel and presenting the truth would be something that would make them wait at the door for you to, to ambush you on the way out. And, and we're talking what we would do to one another would be mild compared to what was done to Paul. His life was a life of uncertainty, but one thing for Paul remained certain. And that was who Paul was going to talk about in the next town. He may not know how they're going to respond. He may not know what their reaction would be. But he already knew who it was that he was going to that next town to talk about. He already knew who it was that when he stepped foot off that ship and he he put his foot on solid ground, he knew what he was going to be talking about that afternoon. Because Paul's message never changed. The location changed from place to place. The reception changed from good to worse to bad sometimes. But the message that Paul preached never, ever changed. One thing was certain with Paul, that when you spoke to Paul, you're going to hear about Jesus. When you spoke to Paul, you were going to hear about the difference that Jesus made. That was a certain. That was a given. Paul didn't risk his life. He didn't abuse his body. He didn't face the furor of hell to go to the next town to talk about the weather. He didn't go through everything that he went through and all the, the beatings and the stonings and the rejections and all of those things to, to go to the next town to talk about the best sports team in town. He didn't show up there to talk about the local economy and ways they might could improve it and tweak things and put more money in their pocket. He didn't go there to talk about the latest national political scandals. Paul didn't show up in town to, to, to give lectures on, on, on the best tent-making practices that he'd learned throughout the years. Paul didn't even go into these towns with the primary goal to reform slavery, or to eliminate prostitution, or to champion women's rights. He didn't talk about getting prayer back in the schools, or even how to grow your church budget so you could build bigger buildings. It wasn't the topic of Paul's conversation. Paul's topic was always Jesus, because Paul understood that when you get Jesus in the right place, it takes care of prostitution. When you get Jesus in the right place, it takes care of false worship. When you get Jesus in place, it reforms the political process. When we get Jesus in place, everything else falls into place. And so Paul came into town to talk about Jesus. And everywhere he went, Jesus was the center of his conversation. Now, there were always those who who, who would embrace what Paul had to say. But there was even more who would reject what Paul and oppose what Paul had to put forth. There were those who were hungry, that wanted more. And there were those who were so full of the world, they had no room or no appetite for Jesus. But everywhere Paul went, he knew one thing. He knew that all he could talk about was Jesus. Because only one thing really mattered when life ended. And that was where we stood with Jesus Christ. Every message that he preached centered around Jesus. Everything that he did focused on getting the gospel of Jesus to to one more person. We'll cover this verse next week, but but, but listen to what Paul says. He says in, in, in chapter 20, verse 23, 24, he says, All I know is I'm going to Jerusalem, and the Spirit tells me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. But, verse 24, and I'm going to make this my life verse. I want it to be. Paul says, I do not account my life as of any value. Nor is precious to myself. If only I can finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's all Paul wanted. That's all Paul wanted was to finish the race and to testify to Jesus. And when I look at these passages, yeah, a kid fell out of a window. Yeah, Paul talked late into the night and early into the morning. Yeah, there was a riot, a the theater that's huge. I don't even know how they would build in that day and time. But the real message is this, that, that Paul's message never changed. The reason there was a riot was because Paul stuck with Jesus and made him prominent. And Jesus changed a continent. The reason Paul spoke all night was he was so full of Jesus. And the people were so hungry for more of Jesus. That it was a perfect match and time just went by quickly. Paul knew that only one thing really mattered and that was Jesus. The incarnate, crucified, resurrected, coming again, son of God. And that was his message. Jesus alone would transform all those other things. Paul's message and his mission was to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. He didn't go into town and tell them warm stories that would connect people to himself. He told them about Jesus. He didn't go in there and, 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 and tell these great stories that would illustrate and make people laugh so they could relax or cry so they would be open. He told them about Jesus and Christ crucified. When Paul talked, Jesus was the topic of his conversation. And in every location, people fiercely opposed him. But some, some radically embraced the Savior. And they went out themselves and began to change their world. These believers that heard the gospel surrendered everything. Because they saw in Paul a man who had surrendered everything. Paul earned the right to say to them, you follow me as I continue to follow Jesus. Paul wasn't cocky. He wasn't overconfident. But he knew as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, people could put their eyes on him. And he says, guys, listen, let's follow Jesus together. Everything that Paul did centered around and focused upon Jesus Christ. And by being that kind of a leader, Paul created a a group of followers that were hungry for Jesus. that had to know more and more and more of Jesus. When they would hear Paul speak about Jesus, it was a sure conviction that he knew so much and they knew so little that they needed to dig deeper and deeper and to meet Jesus and to know Jesus the way that Paul knew Jesus. But there was a problem with that. Paul came to know Jesus through his suffering. And that's where many of us bail out. If I were to ask this morning how many of you as believers would love to know Jesus the way that Paul knew Jesus, most of us in this room would raise our hand and say, I want to know him that way. But if I asked the second question, I said how many of you are willing to suffer the way that Paul suffered to know Jesus the way that Paul knew Jesus? Most of us would go, yeah, I'm not sure I'm there yet. And I'd be the first to raise my hand and say, that's me. I've wrestled this week under conviction that I need to know Jesus better. And I need to come to you guys full. So that what I say makes a difference. And what I say really matters. And that you need to come. All of us need to come. Hungry. So that if God were to speak, and if God were to to get on a roll, if God were to begin to pour out his spirit and say things to us, that we would look up and realize this day's gone and we didn't even realize it's past. When I read this, I see a pastor that's full. And it convicts me that so many times I'm not. I see a guy who was willing to suffer in order to know Jesus even better. And I try to avoid suffering and somehow think that's going to draw me closer to Christ. I've had to come to terms this week again with many of my own insecurities that drive me to seek the applause of men more than the presence of God. I've come face to face with the fear of saying, Lord... If I spoke the way that Paul spoke, and if I stood my ground and I stood for what's right and I built my life and I made Jesus the center of my conversation, God, I wouldn't have as many friends and I wouldn't have as many conversations. And God says, Yeah, but the ones you did have would actually be meaningful. And, and, and the conversations may be fewer, but they'll be fuller. And, and the conversations, you, you may not have 50 people around you, but if you've got five that are hungry, then you're accomplishing more than having 50 around you that just want to talk about the weather or sports or politics. Jesus was the center of what Paul did. And he never was voted the most popular in his class. But I tell you what, you'd search high and low to find somebody more powerful in the pages of Scripture. Paul was a guy who who put it all on the line. His message had nothing to do with lining the pockets of his followers, with improving their quality of life, or by teaching them how to raise their social status. In fact, all the time, the opposite was true. Becoming a follower of Christ meant you emptied your pockets and you helped other people. Following Jesus Christ meant that the quality of your life probably went down because you didn't live for yourself anymore, but you lived for the gospel, and you lived for the kingdom of God. And what you claimed as your own was nothing anymore. How many times do we read in Scripture that people looked at the followers of Christ as the scum of the earth? He didn't come to line their pockets. He didn't come to change their social status. He didn't come to, to make life easy and enjoyable as the prosperity gospel tells us that was not the message of Paul and that was not why people listened to him they came to him because he had the truth and he held to it unswervingly and he presented it to them wholeheartedly and he trusted that the Holy Spirit would use it to bring people to Jesus and to bring them wholeheartedly to Christ There's a real danger in American Christianity that we water down the gospel enough to make it palatable so that people will stay. But in doing so, we create a watered-down, lukewarm Christianity that makes God want to spew the church out of his mouth. That problem begins right here with me. Church can't be red hot if a pastor's not red hot. And a church won't be bold if their pastor's not bold. So this week I've come before the Lord and said, Lord, I need you to do the work in me. I need God to help me ground my identity in him, not in you. And I've got to be willing to do what Paul did to say, Lord, I've got to be all in, even if that means that I can't stay forever and ever in a place I love. I hope that doesn't mean that. But I've got to be willing to lay everything that I am and everything that I have on the line. It doesn't mean I'm going to be harsh or ugly but it means we can't dance around things that we've got to let scripture really do its work and convict us and in that process some may walk away but I pray they don't I pray that what happens is that God changes all of us I, I wrote this this week as I Prayed through where I was at in this. I wrote, I've I've fallen so short of Paul's example. Spent a lot of my time in my ministry talking about many things other than Christ. Seeking to look knowledgeable and skilled in many other things (laughs) other than Jesus. Having too many conversations that centered around things of no eternal value instead of centering on the things that can only offer eternal value. I've advocated building deep relationships with lost people in order to share the gospel, not realizing that deep relationships aren't possible apart from the gospel. Jesus has always been a part of my conversation, but not necessarily the center or the focus of my conversation. So this week I've asked the Lord to change that about me. I know it's not going to be instant. And I know it's not going to be easy. And I know it's not going to be comfortable. But I want to put Christ at the center of everything that I say and everything that I do. And the only way that Christ can be at the center of everything I say and everything I do is for Christ to be at the center of my heart. Because it's out of my heart that my mouth speaks. Do you know why Paul had Christ in the center of every conversation? because Christ was in the center of Paul's life. If you want to know what's at the center of your life, just listen to yourself speak. If it's always I, 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 guess what's at the center of your heart? I want, I like, I insist, I do, I, I. If it's sports. Sports. Listen to what you say, and that will be a mirror to what's at the center of your heart. I don't want to just outwardly force myself to talk about Jesus. I want it to be so rich and so full inside of me that when I open my mouth, that just has to come out. That's what I'm praying for, for me. And that's what I'm praying for for you, that we would be so filled with Jesus and so enamored, enamored by what he's done for us that when our mouths open, that just has to find its way into the conversation. I was talking to another pastor this week at a funeral that I did. I guess it was last week now. I spent all week in bed this week. The end of last week. And just in conversation, we were talking about some, some people that we knew mutually. And he says, yeah, every time I, I, I see this person, he says, it's not long before in that conversation, I'm asking them where they're at with Jesus and how things are going with Jesus. And just him commenting about how that he always brings a conversation back around to see how that person's doing about Jesus, I thought, you know what, I don't do that. Talk about a lot of other things. How's your family? Boy, this weather's sure changing, man. Look at the grass is growing. Those are real eternal value conversations. And I thought about that man last night and I had to send him a text and say, you know, that comment that you made really made me reevaluate where I lead conversations and where they go. I want Jesus to be the center of all that I do. I would like one day... To be known as the guy that people said, you know, you couldn't talk to Rob Long without Jesus coming up. I don't care what you're talking about, somehow Jesus came up. And by the time I die, I pray that that can be said about me. That I wouldn't just try to live it for people to see. that I'd be so full of Jesus that when somebody bumps into me, Jesus just spills over on them. So I want to ask you this morning where you're at in all this. Because we're never going to see revival sweep America until we strike the match and until it starts in us. We're never going to see God do great works in, in our community until there's a group of people that band together To say you know what everywhere we go in every conversation that we have we want Jesus brought in the picture we want to share clearly the gospel and the impact that gospel can have on somebody's life so I'm going to ask you this morning to pray for me as I seek to move this direction It will cost me friends. It may cost me everything. But I pray that I can say with Paul, that doesn't matter. All that really matters is that I fulfill the purpose for which God's placed me here. And I run the race and finish the course that God has set out for me. And maybe today you would say, that you like that same goal for yourself. Let's pray for one another. Let's lift up one another. Let's help one another. And in that process, let's become the men, the women that God's created us to be. Let's pray together.